0: This is HPR episode 2223 entitled "Fossum 2017K Level 1 Group B and C." It is hosted by Ken Fallen and is about 115 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is: Ken interviews the projects in Group B and C of the K Building Level 1.
1: This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm at the ReactOS booth, and I'm talking to... Colin Fink. Hi, Colin. Can you tell me what ReactOS is?
3: So, ReactOS is an open-source effort to create an operating system that can run all applications and drivers written for Microsoft Windows. So, we are basically trying to establish uh, the Windows platform uh, as an open-source platform. That is fully
2: supported and maintained bug fixes maintained i guess
3: um yeah there's an active uh, development community around it it's still a big effort we're still um having much work to do but uh, it's emerging very nicely and um, yeah more and more uh, windows stuff is working nowadays
2: okay what sort of applications can you get running on it now
3: Um, For example, MS Office 2007 runs nicely already. Um, Then, uh, yeah, we we have recently got, uh, for example, the Java platform or also .NET running on it. Um, So uh, more and more applications written for these um, languages are supported. Um, Right now, what we are showing here are also um, uh, laptops which run with um, the common Windows drivers. So, for example, this is using a third-party Broadcom network driver.
2: Always the bane of everyone's life. I'm sorry? Always a problem for people.
3: Broadcom drivers. Um, yeah, we have the uh, we have the advantage that we can use the official ones by Broadcom and don't need to resort what like um, um, others are uh, supporting in their free time. Okay.
2: And uh, so, how stable is it? Is it? Can you use it? Could I run an organization on it at this point?
3: Um, it's not yet ready for everyday use and for every task, but for for example, we have some users already who just need Windows for a single purpose, like there's one application um, that requires Windows, and if that one runs in a VM, you can actually, uh, ReactOS could be a solution to them already at this stage.
2: Okay, very good. And what have you planned uh, coming up this year?
3: Um, for this year, first of all, we have uh, planned to be more present at um, exhibitions like Fosdem or also, um, yeah, upcoming ones like in, in uh, at Chemnitz or in Bonn. Um, what else? Um, there is currently a huge effort to support uh, Office 2010, the more recent version, and then also 2013 and. All that um, so more more support of really those uh, what you would say uh, killer applications for Windows um, yeah I think this will be a huge uh, effort that's going to be done in 2017 as well as for example more stable USB support right now we are still distributing CDs giveaway CDs here but we're looking forward to do that with USB drives in the future
2: and who is supporting the uh, is there anyone supporting the project
3: financially or is it entirely community based It is entirely community based we are totally um, running on donations but we are having a German non-profit organization handling this and due to some um, very successful fundraising campaigns we're having some money now for which we can use to um, fund uh, de- the development. For example, that Office 2010 effort is currently um, being done by uh, some paid developers who are yeah, fixing those issues nobody else wants to look at. You sometimes have this problem and then it's good when you have some uh, money for paid development, yeah.
2: Okay, thank you very much for taking the time and good luck with the rest of the show.
3: Thank you, thanks a lot.
2: Hi everybody, I'm at the Haiku booth and I'm talking to... Francois. Hi Francois, what is Haiku?
4: So Haiku is a free software operating system Uh, that is not a GNU Linux distribution. Yes there are other operating systems around uh, you might have heard of ReactOS and there's also a FreeBSD, NetBSD and, and there's also Haiku uh, and Haiku is inspired by the B operating system which was around until the, the end of uh, 2001 uh, which was a proprietary operating system but we thought uh, it had interesting features and we didn't want to uh, see it go so we just rewrote it
2: completely from scratch and what uh, language are you
4: using to write it so yes almost completely from scratch we reuse other blocks from uh, free software projects like free type for the fonts and other stuff Uh, but the the haiku code itself is mostly c++ uh, and uh, some more c in the kernel but there are some c++ stuff in the kernel uh, as well so yeah
2: and how well has the take-up been
4: of Haiku? Do many, do
2: many people use it?
4: Uh, I didn't really check the figures, uh, but um, I could talk about the committers at least. Uh, uh, there are uh, more than uh, 100 people who are ever committed to the main repository. Uh, we now have a ports repository, so uh, people contributing recipes for porting uh, software. Uh, last time I checked the figures, there were like uh, more than 200 committers, different committers. Uh, it's probably more now because we uh, participate in the GCI, the Google um, Code In uh, Contest. So we have students uh, contributing recipes uh, every year, and it's really, in- really interesting seeing them uh, learn haiku and uh, contribute to it. Is it
2: then more an academic project, or do you envision? Millions of
4: desktop PCs running Haiku in the future? Uh, World well, domination? Of course, yeah. Yeah, well, it's more of a pet project. Uh, it's it's really fun to, to, to do, and um, well, we try to do something different, so uh, to to make people see that there's not only a GNU Linux, uh, and also, well come up with new ideas that uh, linux distro can uh, copy from us maybe
2: <laughs> so what is uh, if you can describe the desktop to me that i'm looking at what makes it different than uh, a traditional desktop like kde or gnome
4: well um, it might look uh, a bit uh, oldish uh, in the, the style
2: retro is the word retro, you're looking for
4: yeah retro is the word um, but, well, we, we like it uh, that way, uh, we don't really fancy uh, bubblegum uh, effects and everything. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, quite slick. I think. Uh, the, the window tabs, uh, they are uh, really uh, useful because you can drag them, you can hold shift and click the mouse and drag them and you can group windows. Uh, so you have you have uh, tabbed windows, uh, you can uh, group them and uh, so it's really uh, it's interesting. Uh, there are some nice features as well on the, the file system for example. Uh, we support extended attributes, so it's basically a metadata that you attach to files, uh, but uh, BFS actually uh, can index them, so instead of having to run uh, an update DB every night to, uh, to see uh, what changed uh, in the file system, uh, well you just let the file system handle it and you just run a query and it's instantaneous. So, That's interesting, actually. And, uh, yeah, we, we use it uh, for uh, the mails, for example. So each mail has a file with attributes. So basically uh, the mail client is just uh, uh, searching the, the file browser with the mail status equals new. So you just see the new mails.
2: Oh, very good. So this is, I think Microsoft were talking about doing something like that a long time ago and dropped it.
4: Yeah, I think they were trying uh, something, uh, they kind of call it like WinFS or something. Yeah, well, BSD BS did it five, 15 years ago, you know. Yeah, very good. And is it easy enough to install or are we
2: talking specific hardware here?
4: Uh, well, um, most, on most PCs, it actually boots uh, quite well. We still have some driver issues, of course, because it's not Linux, so uh, we need to write drivers. We do have uh, some help. Uh, for example, for our network drivers, we uh, wrote a compatibility layer. Uh, so we can actually uh, port FreeBSD BSD uh, drivers without uh, much changing uh, them. So uh, we don't have to maintain a separate ports. Uh, because uh, I remember uh, people from uh, RTEMS, it's an embedded operating system. They first tried to port the BSD drivers one by one. And then it was a mess to maintain, and then they switched to uh, some uh, glue code, separate glue codes, and uh, it was much easier, so we just uh, used this, did the same as, as they did. Uh, but for a graphics driver, we, we support Visa modes uh, in most of, on most of the graphics cards. We still lack some uh, 3D stuff, uh, drivers, for example, but, yeah, well, it's in the works.
2: Okay, can you, uh, can you use it for a daily driver? Can you... Email, can you surf the net,
4: that type of thing? Uh, yes, well, we have a main client, we have an IRC client, that's important. Uh, yeah. Here at least, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, we do have a native browser now that uses uh, WebKit. Uh, well, if people are n- interested, we are still uh, waiting for Firef- Firefox ports uh, because we did have a Firefox port back. It was like Version, version 2 or something on BOS but, you know, they, it's like uh, oh, uh, let's ditch uh, native backends, let's use Cairo and then we ported Cairo and then they said, oh no, Cairo is bad, uh, let's use something else, uh, and then we said okay, we'll just wait <laughs> so You want to have somebody who knows Rust now Yeah, exactly, uh, well, that could be an interesting uh, idea for uh, like GSOC uh, Google Summer of Code uh, contest, maybe, if anyone is interested in porting Rust to Haiku. Um, we still miss uh, LibreOffice port. Uh, we have uh, Olivier around here, uh, who actually uh, started an open office port back before the, the forge. Uh I think some people uh, expressed uh, an interest in uh, finishing the, the port for some the Summer of Code, so maybe, who knows.
2: Okay, thank you very much for taking the time and good luck with the project. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm at the Gen2 booth and I'm talking to... Matthew Doty. And Matthew, can you tell me what Gen2
5: is? Uh, Gen2 is a source-based Linux distribution. I tend to like to think of it as a meta distribution where you can just kind of build your own... Linux distro as how you like it.
2: So this was an immensely popular project a few years ago, but it seems to have waned a little in the meantime. Would you agree with that statement?
5: Uh, I wouldn't say that the popularity has dropped. I would say that the uh, buzz around it has dropped. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough.
2: So how do I... How do I get into Gen 2? I I have a
5: brand new laptop. What do I need to do? Well, we have a couple of live DVDs here that you can do. Um, uh, We also have... uh, You can install really via any bootable media, like CinOS CD you could use. uh, Debian doesn't really matter, as long as you can CH root in it. And uh, we have really, really good documentation for installing. Uh, The install process is... Mostly manual still. Um, we have the stage three, is what we call it.
2: So you've got the stage one, stage two, and stage three. Yeah. So what are the differences?
5: <laughs> um, very quickly, your time yeah, starts quickly. now. Very quickly is uh, optimizations and uh, how much of the system it contains.
2: So say um, um, somebody relatively new to, or say somebody like with a little bit of experience in Debian bit of experience with arch wants to move to gen 2 all
5: right a little bit of experience so if you've experienced arch and debian then you you've experienced some manual installs which is a good thing um and it will be a little bit hard at first just because there's a lot of flags that you can do to turn on and off things like i like to use the example of ldap not everything uses ldap So you can turn that off on a lot of packages if you don't need it and just have smaller binaries.
2: Okay, but say then uh, my boss comes to me and goes, I need you to uh, turn on the one thing that does require LDAP in all your applications. Then what do I need to do?
5: Oh, then you need to recompile. Uh, But if you're deploying out to many, many servers or many desktops, it's not as much of a problem because we have binary package support. So you compile to a binary and redistribute that, and Portage just automatically pulls that down when the use flags match something that's already compiled, okay. and you're good. You're
2: and can, can I take advantage of that, then, if I'm installing a system myself?
5: You can. Uh, there's a few bin hosts out there. Um, I don't know of any off the top of my head, but they exist, and you can just use those to install the base system and then optimize later on if you wish.
2: And uh, general package maintenance—is this as difficult in Arch Linux? Do you, does it require a lot of reading in order to do updates?
5: I don't think so. Like, I, honestly, I updated a couple packages just this morning here, and it was copying, the renaming the file. Simple as that. Yeah, simple as that. So
2: basically, if you want control of your system, you can you can use Gentoo. Yes. Very good. Okay. Anything else that's coming up? Uh, that you've uh, milestones that you've hit this year that you want to talk about? Any uh, successes?
5: Uh, we, I don't know we're we're rolling distribution, so milestones are kind of a difficult topic. We don't do milestones very often. Uh, mostly when we just release DVDs like this.
2: You've got a really nice uh, Gen Two ecosystem uh, graph down here.
5: Yeah, CoreOS even is uh, based off Gentoo. 2 They use our build system and stuff on the back end, e-builds whatnot. I see System Rescue CD,
2: Savion, uh, Google Chrome OS. I did not know that. And
5: I know a lot of um, a lot of uh,
2: server de- deploys. A lot of people use Gentoo in the cloud.
5: Yeah, um, I work for a cloud company and maintain OpenStack within Gentoo, 2 uh, And it works just just fine. Um Using Gentoo in the cloud typically requires using the bin packages I mentioned earlier because you don't want to compile and just waste time and stuff. But it it works great, the optimization that you can get because cloud providers tend to ship generic stuff and sometimes you want to use uh, SSE optimization that's not in the system of Debian or Arch or whatever. Yeah,
2: because you know what you're running it on and you can strip out all the crufts that you don't need. Exactly. And put the stuff in that you do need. Oh, yes, okay great thank you very much for taking the time and good luck with the rest of the show all
5: right thank you very much
2: hi everybody i'm at the core os booth and i'm talking to brian redbeard Hi, brian sorry
6: redbeard
2: where did you get that name
6: a little bit of a nom de guerre, as it were. Uh, It actually started as a pejorative in middle school where other kids would make fun of me because I could actually grow a full beard in middle school and my parents wouldn't let me shave.
2: Very good. That's a story for another time, but we're here to talk about CoreOS. What is CoreOS?
6: CoreOS is a minimal operating system specifically designed to run containers at very, very large scale. And it's based on? It's actually based on Gentoo. We use Gentoo under the hood uh, as an actual SDK for building the entire operating system.
2: Okay, awesome. And that's a lot of buzzwords you got in there. Can you explain to our uh, regular old listeners what a container is and why I would want a special operating system for that container?
6: Absolutely. So a container is actually just a set of components that the kernel provides that are carved out so that you have separate namespaces for networks and users and mounts and things like that so that you can actually bring multiple user lands on top of a single kernel and run them concurrently at the same time. So this means that you can actually then segment things out and have a Debian user land running uh, an IMAP server with you know, a Red Hat user land running uh, a full HTTP stack and be able to pick and choose the exact libraries uh, from the distros that you want and compose them together in the way that you want to use them. Okay, and where does CoreOS come into this? So very, very early on, we realized that being able to automatically update systems and build higher-order distributed systems was a really going to be critical to the security of the Internet. So we wanted to come up with a way where it became easy to move a workload from one machine to another, and containers were re- very, very critical in doing that. So we kind of started out with LXC very early on, then we moved to Docker, then we kind of created our own container runtime to be able to manage things exactly the way that we saw kind of the most optimal and Uh, Being able to have that stateless machine under the hood that could schedule a workload and move it around made it much, much easier to uh, automatically update things and and fail across uh, hosts when you had transient hardware failures.
2: So does CoreOS run on the native hardware providing the uh, Docker containers? or does it run within the Docker containers themselves?
6: It actually runs underneath the hood and is the thing that actually spawns the containers for you. Uh, In in a lot of cases, folks actually run it as uh, a virtual machine, though uh, internally we actually use a lot of physical hardware, so it ends up being the hypervisor for containers in that case. Okay,
2: so uh, physical hardware, then you would have CoreOS, then you would have Docker. That's
6: absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And then on
2: top of that, you have... uh, Red Hat or Debian or whatever else. Certainly. And then Coros provides the tools to migrate and expand and
6: increase memory and stuff like that. Exactly. And we also have built in a lot of, uh, as I was saying earlier, like uh, critical things that you need for distributed systems. So we have a a distributed key value store called etcd that actually allows you to replicate uh, configurations across machines. Uh, We also have a container scheduler that we collaborate with on Google or collaborate with Google on called Kubernetes, um, which ends up being an entire scheduling system for uh, ensuring that, you know, you have n number of copies of a running application always at a given time, routing the traffic to it, etc. Okay, very good. So where can I get more information about the project? Okay. So going to coreOS.com and also checking out our uh, CoreOS user and CoreOS developer mailing lists. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Is there anything that uh, you want to bring to our attention and come up during the year? or Certainly. So coming up in the end of May and early June in San Francisco, we have CoreOS Fest, which is our annual user fest, uh, where we kind of bring in folks from the community to share both the things that they've done and uh, the ways that they're using technology built by CoreOS.
2: Fantastic. Thanks very much for taking the time and have a good show. Have a great day. Hi everybody, I'm here at the Debian stand and I'm talking again to... Sebastian. How, how are you? I'm fine. So, for the uh, people who don't know, what is Debian?
0: Uh, Debian is the Universal Operating System, one of the oldest Linux distributions, uh, completely uh, staffed by volunteers, no company supporting it. Uh. And yet
2: it's one of the largest distributions out there in the, in the commercial field. How
0: did that happen? Uh, probably because there is no company behind it, no mandatory support contracts like Red Hat, uh, etc. And probably because it is a true free software operating system. Okay.
2: And what's your involvement with the um, project?
0: Uh, I'm a Debian developer. I maintain the geospatial and open uh, street map related packages.
2: That's right. Listen, uh, what have you planned for this year? What happened last year in the Debian community? What's coming up this year?
0: Uh, What's coming up this year is, of course, the stretch release. Of course, uh, we never know when uh, the actual release is going to be, because it's going to be there when it's ready, but my uh, expectation somewhere the third quarter this year, the freeze is coming up uh, tomorrow, that's the hard freeze, no new packages, etc. So if things work out with the OpenSSL110 transition, uh, we might be able to do it sooner, but...
2: So what's that transition? Is that there's always sen- seems to be one thing that causes a problem. Is that
0: uh, yeah? Fortunately, it was not a game this uh, this time. I remember frozen bubble causing a delay uh, in a, a previous release. Uh, but the thing with OpenSSL now is the OpenSSL maintainers would like to have OpenSSL 110 in Debian Stretch because of the support for the ChaCha uh, cipher and other improvements in OpenSSL. On the other hand, OpenSSL 1.0 is the long-term supported release, which makes more sense for a Debian stable release. And the biggest problem is that the API broke. So a lot of software needs to be patched to work with OpenSSL 1.1.0. And with many of the packages in Debian, they simply don't have that support yet. So we now have both versions in Debian, but... Uh, not all of the packages far too many still haven't been rebuilt with either one so that's uh, one of the biggest pain points to sort out now
2: okay last year when we were talking the big issue was uh uh switching to system our uh that's <laughs> on system d how has that turned out
0: uh i think the big fuss is over now the Debian guys have uh, started up their alternative i think they've made the first release now so everybody who doesn't like systemd has a nice place to go yeah. and everybody else who didn't make a big deal out of it is happily using it and
7: life goes
0: on yeah exactly it's been almost three years now since the release of jesse which made systemd the default and i think we uh, most people are pretty much happy with it it works
2: and debian what other events are going to be happening around here in Fostem this uh. time
0: well, as I said, we have the nice blog post on bits.debian.org with uh, a list of Debian-related speakers here. Uh, at least uh, 45, uh, as I see right now. So that's good. And, of course, uh, we have our uh, general attendance at the booth to uh, answer price. questions.
8: Uh, sell uh,
0: t-shirts. Sell t-shirts, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: Sell swag. Well, thanks very, much for thanks very much for taking the time, and I hope you will enjoy the rest of the show. I will. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm at the PostgreSQL stand, and I'm talking to... This is Robert Evans. Hi, Robert. How are you doing? Doing good. Yeah, how are you? Not too bad. Can you tell me what PostgreSQL
9: is? PostgreSQL is a, uh, um, um, an open-source uh, relational database management system uh, coming out of a uh, project at Berkeley University um, and uh, uh, became open-source, and it's been picked up by an international community worldwide. And uh, being sponsored by many, many uh, different companies, and it's, it's essentially owned by nobody uh, in the same way that Linux is not
2: um, owned by anybody. So it's a, a
9: true community product.
2: Okay, very good. And uh, how many developers are involved, and what language is it written in? Ah, okay. It's uh,
9: it's written in C. Um, how many developers? Um, uh, uh, hundreds. I mean, many, many, many. Yeah, it's, it's just uh, so we got a core team. We got a uh, hacker team. We got uh, uh, a lot of people around it as well. So we, um, uh, being involved uh, uh, or being being em- employed by different uh, different companies from different backgrounds.
8: Yeah, that works project. Yeah. Are
2: there any full time developers in a, in like a a PostgreSQL building, or is it uh, is it people working for HP who are contributors? Yeah,
9: it's, it's working uh, people working for like NTT in Japan. Um, but also consultancy companies like uh, EnterpriseDB, Second quadrant uh, et etc. Uh, but also like VMware, uh, also uh, provided code for uh, for the project as well. So there are many, many different companies that are involved in the development uh, um, of um, of the, the project. So yeah. Okay. Very good.
2: And um, it's becoming uh, quite popular now to to run it in the cloud. It seems to be uh, so. How would you suggest that people would best deploy uh, PostgresQL in the cloud?
9: In the cloud, well, um, a lo- uh, most cloud providers actually have Postgres in the cloud. Uh, so Amazon has um, a Postgres um, service. There are also other uh, specifically um, um, uh, SaaS providers uh, that provide um, Postgres as uh, a database as a service, essentially. Um, like scientists DB like uh, Heroku and there are many others that, uh,
2: uh, what is med uh, what is med the de facto choice there for that? Uh,
9: the de facto choice uh, what?
2: Oh, it seems to be extremely popular uh, what is, why is it so cloud friendly why is when it, it, f- it didn't obviously start right. cloud like yeah.
9: Well, um, cloud friendly. I mean, like Amazon actually uh, uh, changed the code a bit so uh, to to adapt it to their environment uh, and, and to their services. I mean, the whole source is, uh, is open. It's it's a uh, it's a sort of a BSD license. It's actually PostgresQL license. Which is even freer than than the BSD license. Uh, so it's essentially just you can do with it uh, whatever you want.
2: So a friendly license, a right. open source code. A lot of people using it. Amazon supports it. If Amazon supports it. Everybody else has to support exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So a win-win for everyone.
9: It's definitely a win-win. Yeah.
2: And where did the logo come from?
9: The logo. Um, actually, we got two logos. Uh, so the post, uh, so the uh, the elephant logo. Uh, I think it comes from, or at least the name comes sorry.
2: It's fine, we'll, uh, you go? our uh, recording uh, device has just fallen down, my backup recording, but we're going to keep going and I will not edit, no we never edit. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
9: I'm um, um, not sure where the, where the elephant comes from, it might come from our uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, developers. But definitely the name of the elephant, Slonik, which is Russian, um, uh, comes from Russia. We got a, a, a bunch of developers um, in in Russia, um, coming from uh, the, the Moscow University. Now they actually uh, got their own companies, and, uh, and it's really booming in in, in, uh, in Russia now as well. Um, but in Japan, we have the turtle, because the elephant uh, has. Uh, uh, a different meaning there because there was a group using the elephant, and there were kind of a terrorist groups. So that's, yeah, not good. yeah, that's not good. Um, it was a sarin attack in in Tokyo with them, so it's not good. So they got the turtle, but uh, the uh, the elephant is the official
2: sort of international logo. So is there anything uh, cool coming up this year that we need to be aware of? Or
9: uh, well, uh, this year we're going to have version 10, so we're going to go from uh, 9.6 to 10. Um, there's a lot of work being done on um, uh, logical replication right now, um, and um, uh, yeah, many many new features, uh, and, and, and the community is also growing. We got some some really nice conferences coming up, um, like in New York, uh, in Europe. We're going to be uh, in Warsaw, in Poland, um, in um, um, in November. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really it's really booming, uh, development-wise, but also community-wise. So,
2: okay. and you you just are just a member of the community, or you, do you work for a consultancy company? Or something?
9: Uh, I'm actually self-employed. or something? I, I um, I'm a developer, and so I use Postgres. Uh, but uh, there there are core members here that actually code uh, um, on on uh, on the product on the project. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we, we're uh, a wide variety of uh, people. We were users, we're consultants, we're um, our, 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 uh, core developers here, um, um, and, and spouses as well. So,
2: yeah, so everybody's... Uh, Family of her. I, exactly, yeah. Very good. Well, thank you very much for taking the time, and have a great show. Sure. Thank you. Hi, I'm at the Nextcloud booth and I'm talking to...
10: I'm Frank Karliczek. Hi Frank, and can you tell me what Nextcloud is? It seems to be a new project here at Foster. Absolutely. Well, it's half new, I would say. So um, I'm, I'm the founder of OwnCloud... Um, which is a well-known open-source project and uh, basically the core developer group and uh, the community and me, we forked it like uh, nine months ago into Nextcloud yep. as the next generation. So it's, in a way, it's very new, yes. <laughs> it's like nine months old. But in another way, it actually the community and the software and everything is already established for like seven years now.
2: So you invoked the open-source thing, you took the code and you forked it.
10: Yes, Exactly. So, um, um, like I said, OwnCloud was uh, was founded by me, and quickly we built a community around it, um, and later a company. And there were some problems with the with the with the company, which lead us to the decision to to fork it. So basically, I forked my own project, <laughs> yeah. which is a bit funny. Um, but not only me, but really a lot of uh, community people. As you can see here, the booth there are a ton of community people and volunteers here, and this is like the power of open source. So I'm really really happy that it works like that
2: and uh, i see that own clouder still here are you, are you go- maintaining contact with the developers at at least or?
10: oh yeah 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 i mean i said hi like a few minutes ago and we talk with the, some of the developers a few days ago. So yesterday we maintain contact on, the, on a technical level, on a on on business on a company level. while well, we have different, uh, different directions, different focus now. But sure, I mean, we are still friends. Of course, of
2: course, it can. It, it's not. It's a two-way street. They can also take your code and, and continue to use that. Um,
10: Under
2: in, the in, agreements in, of the license, obviously.
10: In, in theory, yes. And they decided that I don't want to use our code, um, the, but that's their decision. But Everything we do is AGPL. Right, yeah. So everything everything we do is 100% open source. It's not open core like others. So obviously this means that everybody can take our code and do whatever they want with it. Yes.
2: Was there a um, was it an important decision to pick AGPL?
10: I think so yes. Yeah. So um, yeah, I picked the HGPL license 7 years ago when I started with uh, with OwnCloud and um, I think um, I got really good feedback with it. So we, all the all the developers, the contributor seems to be happy with it, and we are also working together with the Free Software Foundation and in, in the US, the people who actually invented the HEPL, and seems to be the best license uh, for this kind of software.
2: Yeah, served you well. And have you? Um, what sort of language is it written in?
10: So. Um, um, Nextcloud is written like in a ton of different languages, actually. <laughs> so the server component... It would be no harm
2: to tell people what Nextcloud is at this point, if nobody
10: knows Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Just
2: remember, uh, there might be some new listeners.
10: Absolutely. So Nextcloud is... Um, well, the, the original idea was to have something like Dropbox and Google Drive. But completely open source and you can host it yourself. So you can basically go to our website, you can download like a zip file, you can put it on a, on a Linux box somewhere, and then you have your own little Dropbox and Google Drive for your friends and family and maybe company or university. Um, but over time it, it went, it became bigger and bigger. So now we have a very good calendar. So you can synchronize your calendar with your phone and your desktop and share the calendar with your family and your colleagues. An address book. There's an uh, there's an uh, news reader. There's a mail reader. There are all a chat app. There are all kinds of features. And now with Nextcloud, we also added like video and voice conferencing. So as you can see here on the booth, there's a demo where you can basically have uh, video and voice uh, communication with others. And it's all like everything completely self-hosted, completely encrypted, completely secured, completely private.
2: Very nice. And uh, what sort of a box would I need to run this on? Can I run on the Raspberry Pi, for instance?
10: Yes, yes. So um, so you can run it on Raspberry Pi. Not the Raspberry Pi 1. I mean, it kind of works, but it's really, really slow. But a Raspberry Pi 2 and newer is really, really fine. This is good for, like, a small group, like three, four, five people. Um, but if you have more users, then we recommend, like, a real Linux server and... We can also cluster to lots of servers, so the biggest installation has several million users. And um, that's, where uh, is
2: that? Can you, can, you say, sorry? Where can, you, can you say where that might be?
10: <laughs> so the, the, the current one that's in production is in India, yeah. with a few million users, but we are actually working together with a, with a big customer, because Nextcloud is also a company uh, who is deploying it for over 20 million users. Wow. That's so it's uh, it's really it's really nice because it's the same software that works from very very small like a Raspberry Pi to very big.
2: Okay, cool. And uh, have you anything planned this year is it more just tidying up getting the next cloud brand out there consolidating or are you going to have events or what's what's the plan for the year?
10: Oh wow! <laughs> so that's a that's a lot. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, last year when we started Nextcloud, there was a lot of consolidation, like also rewriting proprietary components into open source and a lot of brand building and everything. Wow. Uh, and now this year, we really we really can move uh, like full full steam forward. We're going to a ton of events. Um, so there is like just um, OSCON uh, this year. Then there is. Uh, Scale like in, 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 in Los Angeles in two weeks, and a Mobile World Congress, and, um, and a ton of um, open source events. And of course, we also have our own conference, NextLab Conference, which is hosted at the University of Berlin um, in August. Looking, uh, on our website, there's more information. And these are just the conferences. And then we just have like the usual hackathons in between where people come together. We have very active meetups, so we have regular meetups in, I don't know, five or six cities like regularly every month and people coming together to work on Nextcloud. and uh yeah that's just these are just the events and then of course we have like big plans for the software too but this is something that yeah we'll you will see over the year there's a lot coming (laughs) it
2: seems like you're gonna have a very busy time listen i won't uh, take any more of your time thank you very much for the interview and good luck with the show and and the project thanks a lot Hi, everybody. This is Ken. We're here at the Bazel booth, and I'm talking to...
11: Hi, my name is David Stanke, product manager for Bazel. And what is Bazel? Bazel is a build and test system. It's based on the system built uh, at Google over the past 10 years called Blaze, designed for massive builds with uh, incredibly fast reproducibility. Um, And Bazel is our open source version of it. We open sourced it in 2015 and are looking to build a community. So, would it be similar
2: to Jenkins or something like
11: that? or? So, Bazel works at a lower level. Bazel is uh, similar to a Maven or a Make. It's the thing that does your compilation and your test of your code base. You can plug it into a Jenkins or other CI systems. And uh, what is it written in? What language? Uh, it's written in Java. I was expecting Go there, to be honest. <laughs> Not yet. Um, certainly, um, we love Go at Google. And, and Bazel can be used as a build and test tool for Go. But um, Basil, part of it, the story of Basil is that it's multi-platform, out of the uh, sorry, multi-language and multi-platform out of the out of the box. So it's first-class support for C plus Java, Python, Go, and it's extensible to support any other language that you can think of.
2: Okay, so what do, what are your plans with it? How old, uh, Google released it, um, and and what now?
11: Well, Bazel's fully open-sourced at this, at this point. Um, we have a great community of contributors, both to the core platform and to the extensibility side, where there are people writing rules for Scala, for Rust, for Clojure. Uh, and we welcome anyone who's a language expert to please help us build that community. Uh, beyond that, it's a matter of continuing to grow. We recently released Windows support um, and are hardening the, the core, looking to build towards uh, a, a big open-source uh, release of a, a 1.0 with a governance uh, board and and all of the great stuff that comes with having an open source community.
2: And so exactly, say I've got a little app. Uh, where does that fit? where does Basil fit into my app? At what point? I, I, I've got an application written and a low world application in. I don't know. See, uh,
11: where does it where does this fit in? So you're going to use Basil as part of your uh, build and test uh, cycle. So as an engineer, you write some code. You hit compile, it runs, right? The beauty of ba- done. Ship it the not Well, no, because you've got to make a change. So the beauty of Bazel is we maintain what we call a dependency graph, meaning that we analyze your code and know what every piece depends on every other piece. If you make a change to one file, uh, we're only going to rebuild and retest the pieces that depend on that one file. Everything else uh, retains its build and test status from before. So that makes incremental tests lightning fast. So as an engineer, you can build and test at every file change. And in fact, we have uh, there's a, a way you can use Bazel where it monitors your file system and automatically rebuilds and retests every time you change a file. Interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. And um, how difficult is it to install? Is it available on most distros, or do I go to the website and pull it down? Go to the website and pull it down. You can compile from source or pull the binaries. Uh, We have, of course, an active project to get it into the distros, but we're not there yet.
2: Any weird weird, uh, dependencies or anything
11: like that? Just a a Java runtime is all. Okay, cool. Um, So what's coming
2: up this year that you want to, to make us aware of?
11: So I think that the, this year is a lot about productionizing for Basil. Uh, and it, it comes from the ba- Blaze, which is the tool built at Google. It's been around for 10 plus years, meaning we have a very strong core. It's a much more mature product than you would think based on how long it's been in, in the wild. Um, we are uh, working with the communities to really make language support for all the different languages work really well, um, increasing our... Uh, strength in sandboxing so that your builds are really reproducible, they're not dependent on anything that's on the local file system, Um, and hardening Windows support is a big part of what we're doing right now. And what was the motivation,
2: uh, if after 10 years that you were using this as a tool, why even bother open sourcing it?
11: Well, one thing that happened is that uh, a lot of Google open source projects, uh, so say something like TensorFlow, Uh, They have Googlers, and then they have external contributors. And the Googlers are really used to using this tool and love it. Uh, It's harder for them to make contributions in in an environment that they're not familiar with. So by opening that up, we make it lives easier for Googlers. As the external community starts to experience it, they get excited about it. Uh, And then that continues to pull it out. It also helps with, you know, spread the word about how great Google engineering is, helps with recruiting efforts, um, and helps for new Googlers coming in if they understand the tools that we're already using inside. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time and good luck with the project. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
2: Hi everybody. I'm at Fosdem. I'm at the OpenQA and the Open Build Service booth, and I'm talking to OpenSuSE.
12: Yes, it's uh, Richard Graham, the OpenSuSE chairman from the OpenSuSE project.
2: So, tell me, um, what is, what are these services? Why are you? What are they for a start?
12: They're the, 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 the secret source of the OpenSUSE project, really, um, and not just the OpenSUSE project. So, the OBS, the Open Build Service, is our, our build system, building all of our distributions, including the Enterprise SUSE distributions as well. Um, and it's the, the only build system that is fully dependency aware. So, it, it knows, it's trying to build a cohesive product it doesn't just see a uh, distribution of the pile of packages, but as an interconnected weave of things. So when something changes somewhere else in the stack, it knows when and where it has to rebuild everything. So it's always pumping out, in theory, di- um, ISOs and, and disk images that are you know a proper
2: working distribution. So for example, if I have just one text file that's local to my app, yep. my app gets compiled. If it's the C library, then everything gets recompiled. Yeah,
12: exactly. So it takes care of that. And, but, of course, building's great, but in reality, does it actually work? Yes. Um, and in the past, this is something that every project and distribution has dealt with and normally dealt with, like, with passive testing. Like, i would just throw it out to the community, put it in some testing branch somewhere, and if it, hopefully it'll work, and if nobody moans about it in two weeks, then we ship it. That's not good enough in this day and age, especially with something like OBS, where we're changing an awful lot of stuff all of the time. So OpenQA actively tests our software. It actively tests our distributions from the same perspective that a user is actually going to do. So it's actually firing up VMs. It's actually controlling real hardware. And then actually loading up the operating system, clicking on the same menu buttons the user's going to click on, typing the same thing the user's going to type, reading this looking at the same screen actually doing open uh, computer vision open CV image matching of does this have the UI elements I've been told to look for and then driving through an installation or an upgrade and then actually using the operating system and its applications the same way a user will and if that all passes then it's good enough to ship
2: could I use that then for checking websites and the like
12: yeah totally if you feel like it. in fact we test open QA which has a web UI in open QA so it's a little bit confusing when it's testing itself but yeah the, the that's more ones the
2: like, human yeah. element, I'm sure it has no problem with it. and where do I uh, open build service is something that's hosted by SUSE as a, as a thing for the community
12: So yeah the open build well the open build yeah, open build service is software which you can download anywhere the open SUSE build service is SUSE's sponsored instance for the community so it's an installation which SUSE have which anybody can use but if you wanted to download OBS and run it up on your own servers, fine, have at it, have fun. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and in fact, lots of companies have Dell, Linux Foundation,
2: VLC. So, just to clarify people, because yeah. every year we do the same interview, so we presume that people will know. But the Open Build service, if I have a small little app, I can just upload it there and it will create not only the OpenSUSE RPMs, yeah. but
12: you can make the SUSE RPMs, the SLE RPMs, you can build Arch packages, Debian... Ubuntu. Um, I've lost track of the amount of distributions. It's, now. it's like up to like 32, 42 different distributions. It's
2: How a- are say there was a Debian package produced by Op- uh, Open Build Service? Yep. Can I sneak that into the Debian repository, or have they got more requirements?
12: No, not but if you build if you build it properly, then it'll be submitted and accepted fine. I mean there's there's no no reason why not. Yeah. So
2: with zero knowledge whatsoever you can you, maintain your package. Yeah. That's actually excellent for another thing that I intend to do. Cool. This open build service sounds really o- open cool. QA. Sorry, open sorry, open build service. That's exactly. really cool. Moving to the open QA which I was then pointing out. Yeah. Um how do I get that? What do I need?
12: Uh for that, um, there's no pub there's no public instance for people to dive in and use in the same way as, as OBS um, you can see openqaopensusa.org which is our public instance um, you can see openqa.fedorahosted.org, which is the fedora project instance because we 're not guess, the only yeah. people using it. Um, and so and then so we can
2: download the software, run it and, internally, and,
12: and you can go to Open That's where the software is. That's where the source code is. Um, it's also where all the sources for our tests are. So you can see actually how we've written all of those tests for OpenSUSE and even the SLE stuff. Like we're not shy, SUSE aren't shy with hiding the enterprise stuff away.
2: Is is it difficult to write a new test? Not really. It, it's got its own kind of
12: bespoke domain-specific language, um, which if especially if you're a sysadmin with kind of a you know a Perl history, it it's It's really familiar. Um, But if you don't like Perl, we've abstracted most of that away now. So, you know, it's semantics, but really, in reality, there's effectively a macro language of type a string, check a screen, assert the screen. So, you know, check and fail if if it's fatal, that kind of thing. So there's a little bit of an API you've got to learn. Once you've learned those commands, you can write very nasty tests just by arbitrarily running those commands you know macro style if you then want to get fancy and start programmatically doing stuff like uh, look at the screen check for this element if this element there go off and do crazy stuff we've got all that power in there too so you can do really dynamic tests of actually reacting to stuff you might not be expecting and then have OpenQA still work. So we can teach OpenQA to like, work around its own bugs and that kind of
2: thing. Okay, fantastic stuff. I, uh, I will definitely be looking at that because I have a requirement of work for, for automated testing. Thank you very much for taking the time and enjoy. Anything uh, cool coming up with Suzie related to these projects yourself?
12: Um, the, the the main cool thing at the moment is sort of tumbleweed, where you know our, our rolling distribution, which is kind of the embodiment of those two technologies being you know done full full blast. Um, and um, of course, we've got Leap, which is our enterprise based community distribution. Um, and we've got uh, an interesting challenge coming up at the moment because. 42.3, so the, the third iteration of the SLEE 12-based Leap, yeah, yeah, um, is is on the way this year. And in parallel, we're developing the new code base for SLEE 13 slash Leap 43. Okay. So it's going to be a really busy year for us doing kind of two code bases in parallel. Um, and we'll be levering, leveraging all these tools because if this stuff doesn't work the way I just said it did, um, like we're, we're, sc- we're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Okay, excellent. And thank you very much from the community for providing the open build service on Maybe. the software. Yeah. All right, enjoy thank the rest you. of the Thank show. you very much. Cheers. Hi, I'm at the FSFE booth and I'm talking to Florian Snow. Hi, and what's your relationship with the project?
13: I'm a volunteer, so I help out here at the booth and I organize a local group in Franconia in the upper part of Bavaria, northern part. So this is the Free Software Foundation Europe? Exactly. So we're like the European um, spin-off of the Free Software Foundation that was started by Richard Stallman in North America. Can you tell people who don't know what that is? Well, it's a, it's an organization that supports the political work um, to support free software and and like the societal change to um, enable users to have freedom in their computing. So, by freedom, you mean everything's going to be just you know you don't have to pay for it, I would guess. No, we we actually mean free as in freedom, not free as in price.
2: Well, surely you should call it the freedom software then. <laughs>
13: Sorry, I just did
2: a show about that, so I'm, pulling, uh, I'm taking a, a joke too far. So um, it's
13: important work that you're doing, and um, is there many people in the organization? Yeah, there, there are many um, fellows, as we still call them. We're changing that right now to supporters who support us um, as volunteers and, yeah. and who donate money. And um, then there's a few employees who like, coordinate work in a central location. What are we planning to do this year? What cool stuff's coming up? um we're like uh, there's going to be a talk about the radio do- lockdown directive that we've been involved in um there's what the, there's a european um directive that says you cannot change the firmware of any radio that device that has a radio inside of it oh, so no, so that would uh, involve free routers and would maybe prevent us from having um, radio stuff also would yeah. be yeah yeah um, there's going to be a new campaign. Um, since the stickers are out, I can name it. It's called Public Money, Public Code. Yeah, good um, idea. Yeah. So there's going to be some action on that. There's going to be I Love Free Software Day again in February.
8: Okay.
2: So. Good stuff. And where can I get more information about the project?
13: Uh, the best way is to go to our website, fsfe.org, and just check it out there and get involved with us. And
2: no harm to donate some funds as well if you can.
13: Of course, like we always are happy about donations.
2: Excellent stuff. Thank you very much for taking the time, and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome. Hi, I'm at the Vikings Libre Hosting Provider booth, and I'm talking to. I'm Thomas. Hi, Thomas. What is Viking Libre Hosting? So, uh, Vikings
14: is a new project uh, which does basically Libre-friendly and sustainable hosting. That's the uh, main focus, is Libre-friendly and
2: sustainable. So, I see behind you 100% Libre-friendly, 100% Libre-software and boot firmware, and 100% green, zero CO2 emissions. How do you do that? So, we basically have the, uh, well, most modern platforms
14: are usually encumbered by proprietary hardware. Uh, firmware and software. Uh, like the platform we use is the uh, Vikings T16 which is based on a ASUS mainboard. Uh,
2: so this is a, a... I'm looking now here at a pizza type server. Um,
14: exactly and this has been reverse engineered by by the Cobalt people and uh, which allows to run this mainboard uh, completely with Libre software so the BIOS is completely Libre and if you also run a Libre operating system on it you have a full stack Libre system which allows us to uh, provide for Libre hosting Uh, so basically we will provide uh, email, storage servers, VPSs uh, also dedicated servers based on this machine and uh, sustainable we do uh, by we basically go into data centers that already exist, which get the energy which is uh, cert- certificated by, uh, for example, Creampeace, so an independent organization which says, okay, they, they use energy from this or that uh, factory uh, power plant, yes. and uh, uh, so it can be made sure that it's completely green, and there's no CO two emissions at all.
2: That is a an astounding feat, but where's the catch? Well, there is none. It's going to be more expensive, though, than than your average everyday run of the mill hosting.
14: Actually, not because the platform we use is uh, is is quite recent. It's been uh, sold, still sold, and has been sold since 2012. Uh, it's still very powerful. We have. Uh, Two CPUs with 32 cores, up to 256 gigabytes of RAM. Uh, so it is a platform you can use for the next at least three to five years. And after that time, uh, we will we will probably gear towards the power platform, which will provide for for uh, even more power. That that is really, well, how can you say that? It's uh, at, in, in at that time it will be more efficient, like monetary-wise, to, provide, to, to use this platform. This will be, at some point, uh, you will always use something more powerful to, to provide better prices.
2: Do you go into one data center or, you, or do you have multiple servers and multiple data centers? Yep.
14: Originally, we, pl- we, we, we have planned to build our own data center so we can provide uh, full physical security. Um, we have done a crowdfunding last year. Uh, which ended uh, last month, and uh, it wasn't very successful. So now we are doing basically plan B. So we are going into existing data centers and enable them, so to say, uh, with our Libre services and our Libre hosting platform. So uh, by doing that, we save a lot of money, of course, with a catch that we can't, Really provide for complete physical security because it's not our data center. We will have uh, some hardware that will provide for that, namely Flexware, which will be developed uh, this year and uh, will be sold this year for this mainboard. And uh, this will, so with this Flexware, you can provide any system. Uh, based on the on the on the D16 uh, server, anywhere, even in the U.S. So if somebody changes uh, the hardware, like for example, uh, the NSA takes the server out of the rack and they tamper with it. You will find out about it, and you will be notified. And you can say, "Oh no, somebody has tampered with it." I will, I will. For example, if they flash another firmware, you can say, "Oh no, I will just reflash my firmware." Or you will say, "No, I can't use the system anymore."
2: Yeah, yeah no more trust in that server. Okay, that's a that's an interesting uh, approach. Um, do you think that the has there been a lot of interest in?
14: Yeah, well actually, we have a lot of, int- despite the failing of the crowdfunding. Uh, we have a lot of interest, especially from the U.S. for people who are really worried about the current situation. Oh, I wonder why. And uh, I think that uh, if, that we will w- will succeed
2: with this. Uh. It seems logical that if you have a, um, you know, someone like Greenpeace, they should be running their servers on, you know, uh, energy neutral servers, they should be running a website on, you know, it, it seems like a logical thing to do if you're into uh, a whole industry sector there that should be running their servers on something like this, so it's, it's a good opportunity. Where, are, uh, you, where did the name come from and uh, where are you based? Well, we are based in uh, Germany currently
14: and uh, the data center, we can actually go in any data center we want to. Right now we are in a data center in Frankfurt and in a data center in Nuremberg. Uh, so, customers potential customers can uh, set up a strategy to have redundancy for example and the name vikings uh, it's just a cool name
13: it has nothing to do with your beards uh,
14: it has nothing to do with my beard and uh, it's basically the Vikings were where people well what, what we know that they, 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 they fought for their rights they were not only people who who went to England and killed everyone for for, 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 for for the gold and silver. They were people who, normal people like you and me, who were worried about their future and they fought for their own future. And we're doing the same. We're not killing anyone. Uh, there's a difference. But we're also very worried. And that's why we are offering this project to the people.
2: Okay, so how do I sign up? What are the prices what, what sorts of solutions are you offering and where do I go to?
14: Vikings is a very new project, so we are still in the startup phase and there will be a pre-ordering uh, going until the 1st of May when we will uh, go live with our
2: platform. And it's vikings.net? It's vikings.net. Vikings.net, fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time. And good luck here, I hope you'll have lots of people signing up. Thank you too, Ken. Hi, I'm at the General Tour Network stand, and I'm
7: talking to... To Vary from Frönt von der And what is that? Well, Frönt von der is Luxembourgish and stands for Friends of the Onion. And we are a torservers.net partner organization, which means that we want Tor nodes all over the globe.
2: Okay, now I'm going to, as you're the first one here, I'm going to need to ask you the question, what is Tor and what does it do?
7: Tor is a software that you can use to uh, anonymously serve the Internet. That's basically what Tor does. And it helps uh, people all around the world to communicate with uh, other people and to securely communicate. And how does it do that? Well, it's uh, doing it with the so-called onion routing, which means there are multiple layers of servers that it will use to get to uh, the Internet site you want to visit. So who started this project? Yeah, <laughs> who started? You mean the Tor project or our organization? Yeah, the Tor project to start off with. Tor project. Well, this was some, some fancy guys that thought, okay, we need anonymity in the Internet, and which got help from the uh, U.S. government. With uh, governmental funds and uh, yeah, which are now spreading the word of Tor and uh, we are trying to get organizations like ours to run the infrastructure.
2: Okay, and uh, so, so um, basically I can browse anonymously using the Tor browser.
7: Well, pretty much now, yes.
2: And the Tor browser is based on what uh, what
7: underlying system? Well, it's using the uh, Firefox with some modifications that it uh, like something like to block JavaScript by, uh, by default, and uh, yeah, which use the, the Tor as a proxy server. So
2: I've downloaded uh, that that uh, application, and it seems trivially very
7: very easy to use. Is it still safe if it's so easy to use? Well, we are trying to make it as safe as possible and as easy as possible, which always means that we have to. Um, adjust things because normally if you uh, make things easy means that you are offering or um, which reduces the security and that's uh, always a game we have to play and to get in um, on the same equilibrium and it's pretty hard but we are trying to make it as easy and as secure as possible
2: and what's your organization what does what does your organization do
7: Well, our organization, which is based in Luxembourg, is uh, currently trying to get more exit nodes and bridge servers on the Tor network. So what's an
2: exit node and then what's a bridge
7: server? Well, an exit node is basically the last server uh, Tor uses to get out to the Internet. So uh, if you are uh, using Tor, the probability of uh, going to one of our exit nodes is right now at 5%. So, uh, the website you are using or visiting will see the IP address of our exit nodes.
2: So, if, I, if I'm browsing Google, for instance, and I come out at google.lu, is it? Then I'm coming out through you guys. Yes, yes. Thank you very much, that. There you go. <laughs> and um, uh, why are you here, exactly? And who pays for these exit nodes? Surely there must be an awful lot of traffic coming out, then.
7: Uh, well, yeah, we are, uh, We have generated like twenty petabytes of traffic uh, for the last three years, and all the servers are running with uh, donations from members or donations from, like here, the Forstam, or back in Luxembourg, we have the HackLU and other conferences. So uh, we, s- yeah, we depend on donations.
2: Okay, and Michael, what
7: motivated you to get involved in this? So, uh, the motivation was like that we had the first crypto party in Luxembourg and we thought about, yeah, why not invite people all over the the globe to come and speak to us. And we invited Moritz, which is the founder of torservers.net, which already wants uh, exit nodes all over the globe, just like we do. And he just asked us, well guys, why don't you create an organization like ours, but in your country? And we were like, okay, well, we are from the Case Computer Club Luxembourg, why not? So we created it in 2013. Yep. And yeah, we began to earn exit notes. And now we have currently like seven exit nodes in Slovakia, Romania and Luxembourg and a hell of a lot of bridge servers all over all around the globe. What's a bridge server? Well, a bridge server is uh, mainly a server you use when you can't uh, directly connect to the TOR network. Like in China, which uh, is censoring connections to the normal TOR network, you have to uh, use a bridge server to get around this uh, censorship.
2: And is that is that something that... Uh, does that need to be as
7: high bandwidth as the exit nodes no not as the exit nodes because bridge servers are only used to uh, make the first connection to the Tor network and not uh, every county centers the direct connection to the Tor network that means that not everyone has to use bridge servers only those countries like in syria iran or like china that are mainly using it
2: so who can help out uh, if they wanted to um, say i have a 100 megabits internet connection can i help out or is it better for organizations
7: well, I recommend everyone to uh, want it under an uh, organization. Why? Because um, we had to go to a lawyer which uh, wrote us uh, down the Luxembourgish Law about uh, hosting tour notes and doing all the stuff with the traffic. And it's a hell of a lot better to uh, be in an organization because when it comes heart to heart and the police is knocking on your door, you want to have something, someone behind your back. And in this case, it's our organization and the law.
2: So, if um, uh, what what do I need infrastructure wise in order to be doing an exit node or a bridge node?
7: Well, uh, if you look at our infrastructure, we are only hosting gigabit exit nodes, so that means we need at least like sixteen gigabyte of RAM. We need uh, an i seven CPU to handling all the the traffic, and uh, yeah, of course, on me to a gigabit uh, connection to the outside world. Okay.
2: And who would uh, who would be um, who? Would be inclined to give that sort of service?
7: Well, not many ISPs because, um, you know, uh, yeah. there are also bad guys that yeah. use the Tor servers for doing spamming or DDoSing or hacking. And uh, we are mainly. Kinder porn, of course. Yes, 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 of course. And we are mainly convincing ISPs around the globe to allow Tor because it's also used for a good case. And uh, we are talking to them, we show them, okay, those are the implications when you host it, uh, what can you do, talk to us, that's the law in our country, that's the law in your country, and um, yeah, we, we have to convince them recently, uh, much louder than uh, it was at the beginning.
2: Okay, but that might change, unfortunately, in the coming... Yes,
7: yes, in the yes, coming. yes. Yes, <laughs> Okay,
2: um, anything coming up that I need to be aware of over the coming time?
7: Well, uh, yeah, we are all day here at the Forstam, so you can go to our booth, uh, just talk to us about Tor, about exit notes, I don't know, about uh, security, anonymity, just come by, drop us a word. We also have some gimmicks to sell, and, well, recently we are trying to, in our county to go to the libraries and say, okay, that's a Tor project, why don't you host a bridge server at your uh, facilities? And, uh, yeah, those are some flyers just educate the people about Tor, and we are trying to yeah, get in uh, contact with uh, libraries. Okay, very good. Thank you very much for taking the time. No problem.
2: very no good. Hi, I'm at the Zen booth, and I'm talking to... Julien. Hi, and can you tell me what Xen is and specifically what Zen Orchestra is? Zen is a virtualization solution
15: and Zen Orchestra is a web interface for it. Okay, so what's a virtualization solution? It allows you to create uh, virtual machines uh,
2: and to abstract uh, physical resources. Okay, is this more like VMware or more like Docker? More like VMware. So I could run Windows on a Linux machine? Exactly. And so um, that's been going for a while. Is there is there support for Zen in the in most distributions and in the kernel?
8: Uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't understand. that. Is there support for Zen in the kernel?
2: I don't I don't know about that. And uh, what is Zen Orchestra then? So Zen Orchestra started
15: as a, a web management UI, but now it's more like a, a cloud light solution. Uh, based decide. on top of them so you, can, uh, so you can you can you, you have a, a, self, a self-service you can create users delegate some resources you can uh, schedule some backup jobs and you can administrate uh, your servers from everywhere because it's a web-based solution so you can cr- you can add servers can you increase the size of disks for example exactly yes you can do all that you can start to migrate your machines and, and how do uh, how do i go install that uh, you just have to, to get on GitHub, uh, our GitHub, the, the whole code is here, and you have a link to the documentation, and then you can find how to install it from the sources. And if you, if you are an enterprise and you don't want to, to handle that by yourself, we also sell a solution when the Zen Orchestra is already bundled in the virtual machine.
8: Okay,
15: very
2: good. And uh, is there any um, major updates coming this year? Have you added new features in the last year? Yes, we've worked, we've worked
15: a lot on um, on uh, backups, uh, Delta backups and uh, file level restore, but uh, this year we'll probably m- we'll be more about hyperconvergence, and uh, hyper-co- hyperconvergence, you know, it's when uh, each host is not only a, compu- a compute node, uh, but it's also a storage node, and the... And, uh, because we are, we are using glusterfs on top of it so the the whole uh, storage is, uh, is seen as a, a single uh, a single storage unit
8: with a replication
16: so this is the main feature for this year okay very good
2: and are there any conferences or uh, events coming up that you'll be at uh,
15: we don't know yet probably uxnoracon uh, and maybe a linuxcon
2: in us okay very good thank you very much for taking the time and enjoy the rest of the show
15: thank you Hi
2: everybody, I'm at the OpenStack booth at Fostem, and I'm talking to... Aurelien. Hi, and uh, what is OpenStack?
17: Uh, OpenStack is a project um, managed... I'm sorry, I'm very bad at this. Take your time, no rush. Right. Okay, OpenStack is aimed um, to bring a kind of AWS from Amazon inside your walls, uh, so you can keep your workload inside your walls. So it's a private cloud. Yeah, it's, a, it's the main, I would say, uh, private cloud system you can have in your company. Okay, so this
2: is, a, say, an internal large corporation has a data center and they wanted to be able to provide AWS-like services, then we could deploy uh, OpenStack.
17: Yes, OpenStack is the, the main, uh, the, the principal project you could use to do that. And is this a uh,
2: supported by one company or is it multiple companies?
17: So OpenStack is uh, backed by the OpenStack Foundation, which is composed of uh, very large companies. Uh, they have support from Red Hat, um, IBM, uh, I think there's SUSE too. Uh, the main Linux vendors, uh, the main Linux vendors, distribution vendors, I'm sorry. Uh, provides OpenStack distribution and OpenStack support and consulting. There's also uh, small companies, like the one I'm working for, uh, providing that kind of support. But the main big Linux companies can help with OpenStack.
2: Okay, and so uh, how do I deploy it? What do I need? I've got my hardware. What else do I need? Where do I go?
17: Okay, so if you want to try it at home or just to make a small lab, you can use DevStack which is a, a suite of tools uh, made for you to deploy an OpenStack on your laptop you can deploy an op- a working OpenStack on your laptop you're not going to have very big performances but it can give you a hint on how to use the web UI the APIs and so on uh, when you want to go further and uh, deploy that on multiple servers and go more uh, production-like you can ju- you, you can use um, Project like OpenStack and Sybil. There's also RDO from Red Hat, which I don't know very well. Uh, You can also use vendors distribution, like Marion's OpenStack, or I guess Susie has their own, too. And the OpenStack itself, is that like the virtualization, or is it the containers, or is it all of the above? OpenStack is a suite of tools uh, Mainly, basically, it exposes you APIs to talk to 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 make a virtualized environment behind OpenStack. If you want to, to know what runs your VM, it it can be KMU KVM, uh, it can be Xen. It depends on how you want to to implement your OpenStack cluster. Okay, so I'll, it's quite flexible in that in that. Yeah, it's very flexible. Uh, also, for the storage of your VMs, uh, there's a component called sino which can be backed by uh, a lot of backend, which can be safe for the software-defined storage. Uh, it can also be your big appliance, if you have a tripper appliance, or big sun you want to still use, you, you can do that as well. And do you support um,
2: software-defined networking as well?
17: Uh, I'm not very uh, knowledgeable in that, but yeah, uh, OpenStack... Uh, the network in OpenStack is uh, managed by uh, Neutron, which is software-defined network because it uses um, Open vSwitch. It can use Open vSwitch, uh, Linux namespaces to do switching and routing between instances inside your OpenStack cloud. Okay, very good. So, um, what's your involvement with the project? I'm not involved a lot in the project itself, but uh, I work uh, with OpenStack <laughs> daily for a customer and. Uh, I wanted to be here to tell people about OpenStack, uh, explain them what it is, like people are asking oh I got, uh, I got GPU boxes I want to share with people, can I share them with OpenStack, can I expose them with OpenStack, so yeah, it's interesting to, to share that knowledge.
2: Cool, very good. So do you know what the plans are for OpenStack uh, during the year, are there any events coming up or any developer
17: conferences that we need to know about? Uh, so the the main OpenStack summit is going to take place in Boston in May. Uh, there's also going to be a smaller, more very very technical meeting in Milano, I think, uh, very very soon. Uh, and uh, in November, next OpenStack summit will be in uh, Australia.
2: Oh, very good. Okay, um, enjoy the rest of the show, and thank you very much for filling people in on
17: what OpenStack is. Thank
2: you. Hi, I'm at the Overt booth, and I'm talking to Yaniv. Hi,
18: and uh, what is your relationship with the Overt project? I'm an Overt community member. I'm part of the development team. I also develop uh, Overt as part of my work at Red Hat. Okay, very good. And what is Overt? So Overt is a complete data center virtualization management system. You manage your host, you manage your virtual machine, and all the infrastructure around it. Essentially, it gives you an infrastructure-as-a-service complete solution. Okay, and how is that? Is, is that using OpenStack at all? Or No, it's actually partially overlapping with OpenStack, but OpenStack is more towards cloud, and we are more towards data center virtualization. Okay. So, yeah, we both use KVM, we both use libvirt, but the use cases are a bit different. Okay, and what's the difference? So, for example, in OpenStack, virtual machines can come and go. There are less less more of a pets kind of, where you actually nurture them, you take care of them, they live longer and so on. You care less about those things. In data center virtualization, yes, you do. In OpenStack, you wouldn't necessarily over-provision because... Really, cost is an issue that rolls out to the customer. And data center virtualization, it's your cost. So you will over-provision. You will optimize the hell out of your data center. Okay,
2: so this is for your own data centers as opposed to running something in the cloud?
18: Mostly, yes.
2: Okay, and uh, do you have have a lot of
18: interest from people running this? Yes, of course. So we meet a lot of our users year after year uh, here in the conference. We hear a lot of people that uh, actually heard about it but haven't tried it. We hear a lot about people who are using VMware and are looking for an alternative. And Overt is a great alternative in two ways. First of all, it provides very, very similar functionality, but also it enables a migration path. So you can actually import your virtual machines from VMware to Overt, try it out, see how it works for you while keeping your VM in the VMware environment. So these are the two main charters of users that we see here.
2: So it would be more a VMware replacement, a VMware studio replacement, than, than for uh, something like Amazon Web Services,
8: I'm guessing.
18: Yes, yes, yeah. it's going to be a VMware replacement. It's going to be a replacement for people who actually run already VMs using KVM libvirt but doing it themselves. Now, it's yeah, yeah. okay if you do it for one server, for two servers, but it really doesn't scale up. Okay.
2: How does uh, what sort of things can I get now as a as a customer of that? Do I get snapshots, backups? Everything
18: you can think of. We have hundreds of features. All the top features that are critical for virtual machine management are there. If of course running them, running them in sophisticated way with kind of scheduling, live migration, live snapshots, live hot add of disk, hot add of CPU, of memory, of network card, anything that you can think of, really including a very uh, extensive ecosystem. So everything you can do from the user interface, you can do from the REST API, you can do from a Python SDK, a Java SDK, a Ruby SDK, and Ansible, which was just released, actually.
2: That's funny you should mention that. I may be interested in that on a professional level later on. Um, so, um, how would you recommend running, say, a cluster of databases to keep, keep high availability of databases? Is that something that you can solve with this? Yes,
18: of course. So, we have support for high availability of a uh, virtual machine. We actually, in the very latest release, which we just released two days ago, we introduced a new highly available um, architecture for virtual machines. You can easily do that. Uh, we have great integration with Gluster, actually, we can you can actually run hyperconverged scenario, so your compute and storage host are essentially the same.
2: Okay, very, very good. And Gluster is the distributed file system, which I still need to
18: do an interview on. But right, that's, that's... It might that's even
2: come before this, you never know. Right. the magic of podcasting. Um, so, um, this is a Red Hat company, and is, is this... Uh, am I required to go to Red Hat to get contracts for this, or can I just download the source code and compile it myself?
18: No, no. Overit is a community project. It's on overt.org. Yeah, We have a very vibrant uh, users community that are contributing, especially to the ecosystem. We have a, c- a contribution, for example, for a vagrant provider. We have someone who wrote a CLI uh, around it. We have uh, someone who wrote a monitoring agent solution around it. We have yeah. uh, quite big uh, community involvement in this. If you want to buy a product, yes, Red Hat Virtualization is the downstream product for Overt. And of course, we're heavily involved in Overt development.
2: So it's going to be an Overt before it's going to be in the Red Hat
0: version? Yes.
18: Okay, definitely. cool
2: stuff. So anything uh, new that's come up this year and uh, that, that you've been working on what have you been working on this year?
18: Well, of course, since we just released a new release two days ago, especially for FOSDEM. We, we, yes, our milestone was exactly to meet the FOSDEM time frame. <laughs> We're very excited about this release. It's a 4.1. So it's the first stable release that we've done after the big furrow It's still contains lots of features. I'm very excited of many of them. We've contributed the overt unstable modules to Ansible 2.2 and 2.3 actually. Oh, nice. uh, we have a discard support and storage, which is a boom for storage uh, um, efficiency and utilization. We have moved to a qca 2 version 3, which enables high performance. We've improved the scalability of the database and so on and so on. So lots of needs and pieces everywhere that can help you improve the user experience. And the dashboard that we introduced in 4.0 now loads much faster in 4.1. And we're still continuing to fix bugs, improve stabilization, improve scalability, and add more features. So what's coming up next year? Then?
2: I'm never satisfied me. What, what's the plans?
18: Well, for example, we're using the Patternfly open source design patterns. We are now upgrading to a newer version, so the UI will look even better. We have a new user portal that's coming up. We have integration with the Open Virtual Network, which is a software-defined network solution on top of OVS. So that's coming up. It's already in tech preview. It will move to production. And there's plenty more to see.
2: Excellent. Well, anything else that you want to tell us before we go? No, as,
18: as always, very happy to hear, very happy to hear the different uh, workloads and different kinds of setups that we see from our user and the community. I'm always looking for positive feedback on the product, always looking for what can we improve, where can we improve, and I'm very happy with the community of Excellent. giving this feedback. Oh, they'll give feedback here, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much, and good luck with the rest of the show.
18: Thank you.
19: I'm at the Foreman booth, and I'm talking to Greg Suckleff. Can you tell me what Foreman is? Sure. So Foreman's a lifecycle management system. It aims to help you deal with the whole of the operations necessary to manage your servers. That could be physical servers. That could be virtual servers. So that's not just configuration management, but also provisioning, integrating with services like DNS, DHCP, maybe IPMI, BMC stuff, whatever you need to get into in order to bring your servers up, get an OS on the disk, up and running, into your infrastructure, monitor them over time, and eventually deprovision them again at the end. So why would I even need this when we've got the cloud? Well, we can talk to the cloud. That's absolutely fine. We can talk to physical systems. We can talk to physical-like systems, such as Overt here next to us, or you know VMware or Libvirt. But we can also talk to easy 2 DigitalOcean, Rackspace, GCE. If all you want to do is spin up an image, That's fine, but that's not part of your infrastructure yet. You can spin up a 1,000 servers and they're useless to you until they're doing some work. that means you've got to get your application on there. You want to get it maybe hooked up to Puppet or Ansible. So there's some one-time steps that need to happen. And you want to also monitor that, right? You want to see those Puppet reports coming back and have a nice front end to that so you can see what's happening in your infrastructure and find out whether there's a problem you need to investigate. Nice graphs for your ops team or your management, all that kind of stuff. So how does it work? I order some servers from Dell and I put them in my rack, then what? Okay, so first of all, you're going to need Foreman somewhere, right? Foreman is a Ruby on Rails uh, application, so it needs to live on the network somewhere. And we have little pieces of Ruby code called the Foreman Proxy. We put those on the services... Uh, the need managing, so DNS, DHCP, these things we put little proxies out there. That gives us a consistent API to talk to, allows us to scale out nicely, so you still only need one single form and one source of truth on your network. So we have a rack of hardware. Now you have two approaches. Physical servers are an interesting use case because we never know the MAC addresses in advance, right? If I talk to LibVirt, I can get a MAC address back. So you could either write those MAC addresses down, put them in Foreman, or we have a plugin called Discovery, which gives you a kind of a a metal-as-a-service approach uh, where we can boot them into a RAM disk and get the MAC addresses ourselves. Either way, there's some registration process, right? So you either do that yourself or you do it via a plugin. And now we manage the rest of the process. So in Foreman, you say, I want to provision this machine. It's going to have CentOS on it, and I want it to use this Kickstart template and this disk layout and go. And as soon as you hit go, Foreman's going to hop out and important to say every part of form is optional so maybe you've enabled DNS and DHCP so we go out we say okay I know my MAC address I can go to the DHCP server and get an IP back now I can write a reservation that host is always going to get that IP I can go to the TFTP server I can write some pixie code so that it boots into the correct installer I can go to the DNS server and write a DNS record for my new host name and now it boots up into the unattended goes through the unattended install finishes that tells form it's done we take away that pixie code replace it with local boot and it comes back up into the network. And then you hand it off to Puppet or Ansible or whatever. And and the same sort of configuration for AWS. Right, exactly. The, one of the nice things about Form is that UI doesn't change. You're still filling out most of the fields. But as soon as you say, I'm not doing physical now, I'm doing AWS, a lot of those fields in the network-specific tab will disappear. And instead, you're going to say, okay, this AMI in this region, and everything else is the same, right? So, so the UI remains consistent. That's good for your junior ops people good for your processes, all that kind of thing. And then uh, what comes on top of uh, What comes On top of Forman? On top of Foreman? that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm struggling to see where you're going with this. Right, if you've got integration with Ansible, then why would I need Ansible if I've got Forman? Because Forman won't take actions. That's the point. Foreman sits there as a, as a central point of truth and a way to drive things like configuration management systems, but it itself has no configuration management built in. So I can say, okay, I could manage my Ansible roles by hand or I could import them into the Foreman UI and allow people to assign them to hosts and run them from there but you're still running Ansible at the end of the day it's just a different way of interacting with it and so it's a question of what you need out of your infrastructure if you're happy with doing everything on the command line then you don't need Foreman to handle that part of it and you can turn it off, I mean everything in Foreman is optional but if you do want to be able to do that from a nice UI and maybe build up things like host groups so you can group uh, similar servers together with the same things then maybe this is something you want to look at Okay, excellent. So what is the history of the project? What's the license, for example? License is mostly GPL. Obviously, there's been contributions. And because it's a Rails project, you end up with plugins from different places and so on. But it's, it's mainly GPL, uh, v3. And the project's about seven years old. It was started uh, by my manager, Ohad Levy. And he has taken that over the last few years and grown it. We've grown it into a large team at Red Hat, mostly. I mean, it's fully open to contributions from the community, of course, as you would expect from a Red Hat project. But it's fair to say most of the development is paid for by Red Hat. And we're probably, I don't know how many people these days. it's important to say Foreman plus one of the larger plugins forms the upstream of Red Hat Satellite 6. So if you're familiar with Satellite 6, you're already familiar with Foreman, even if you maybe don't know it. Um, so, so that's where it came from. It, it, it grew out of a need that Ohad had. Uh, that's a really bad phrase. And he took it from there. He joined Red Hat. They, they saw the value and grew it from there. Excellent. So what milestones do we have last year? Successes. That's a really good question because I' I've, it's fantastic. So uh, probably the most valuable thing we did last year was that this, almost exactly a year ago, we met up with the Puppet guys. We've been trying to get Puppet Force support into Foreman for quite a long time. And we met with the Puppet guys, we f- hashed out a roadmap, and within about three months, by our birthday in July, we'd actually got a release out with full Puppet for support in it, which made the community very happy. we have been waiting 18 months for that. Uh, also, one of our community contributors, a guy called Timo Goebel, uh, he com- contributed a full IPv6 stack to it as well, so we now have proper IPv6 support throughout the project. So, uh, Well, I say full. Obviously, there's some edge cases, things like TFTP is kind of an IPv4 thing and so on. But, but you know, you can assign IPv6 addresses, get them from an IPv6 system, and pretty much everything you want to do with IPv6 is supported. So, okay, And this year, what's, what are we looking at going forward? Are there going to be any meetups? Um... There's, okay, meetups in the next few days, actually, because we've got config camp next week. Uh, We'll probably do something around our birthday again. Uh, Nothing concrete yet, but we had a really good run of about seven or eight events within the space of a month around our birthday last year. I'd love to do that again. Um, In terms of milestones, 1.15 will be out in a couple of months. That's got a new notifications framework in it, which is going to be lovely. I'm really interested to see what plugin maintainers do with this and what sort of notifications they want to give to users. Beyond that, it's hard to say. We don't really do roadmaps, so it's whatever lands in there. Anything else we missed, or have oh, we covered it all? I think we've got most of it, to be quite honest. A shout-out to Catello, our sister plug that uh, forms part of Satellite 6, and to all of the community who are absolutely fantastic. We wouldn't be where we are without them. Fantastic. Thank you very much, and thanks for taking the time.
2: Thank you. Hi, I'm at the Cluster booth, and I'm talking to... I'm Mohamed Ashik.
20: I'm Chief Tony. Yes, I can. And Kaushal.
2: And we, you need to write your name on the thing later on.
20: And tell me, what
2: is cluster? What is cluster? Is it cluster FS? Why am I wanting to say cluster
21: FS? Because Gluster uh, FS is the what do you say flagship project of the Gluster community.
8: Okay.
21: Yep. So Gluster started out as a, what do you say a software defined hyper sorry. High-performance computing or a supercomputing project uh, effort, yeah. because the Gluster founders were supercomputer uh, developers somewhere in the U.S. Yeah. They started out doing a software stack for a supercomputer, but they found out that uh, software uh, uh, the storage part of the stack was a much bigger challenge, and they wanted to solve that. And that's where GlusterFS started out, and that's how it became GlusterFS. And right now, GlusterFS is the flagship project, okay. and it's. Yeah. How does that differentiate then from cluster? So, right now, Gluster and GlusterFish are interchangeable. But it started out as a part of Gluster. Okay. Yeah. So, what does it do? You guys oh, want yeah. answer? So, basically, it's a file
20: system, distributed file system. So, applications can store their data in it. Uh, okay, so there will servers and clients and the clients can talk to different servers at a time in a single point. So that's it.
2: So I mount, I go to my etc fs tab, and I mount slash
21: cluster, and that's it. Yeah. And where you is need my t- LustreFS volume before actually? So yeah. What I think Jiffin wanted to say was LustreFS is a distributed file system where you install LustreFS on different servers you want. Yeah. You create it. You create a single volume out of them. So all of these servers together are available to your clients as a single storage device. So I just need to mount it one place. Yeah. So you can mount hyphen T on your clients. You can put them in your FS tab if you want to. And your clients get the storage available from the servers. All of them in a single mount point. Instead of like doing separate mounts for each server, get a single mount point and GlusterFS handles distributing files across all
16: these servers.
2: Right, I'm getting very nervous now because my family photos are stored on my cluster server. What if one of them goes down?
16: Uh, So we have replica options. In case of uh, a node going down, you will not lose or you will not see any delay on data not being there. So if one node goes down, other two replicas will show the data on your mount points. So it's like
2: RAID only across servers Uh,
16: it's not RAID it's just replica so whole yeah whole volume is created one more time and kept it there just for a backup in case if you lose something it'll uh, get the copy from there or else in case if this node goes down it will show to the mount point from there
2: okay so um, how many servers so each of these servers will be running some sort of redundant array anyway uh, as a as an operating system. So, on the, on the underlying file system, is that also cluster or is that ext2? Yeah,
21: the underlying file system is any POSIX compliant file system which has support for extended attributes. Yes. Better support. The, so, some file systems generally don't do extended attributes really good. Uh, so, if I the, to XFS, XFS. That's what we test on, that's what we. As Red Hat, the company, we do a lot of our development on, so that's what we So
2: I got now uh, lots of servers. I've got two in each data center, three data centers. I make one cluster of everything. Do I?
16: In different data centers, I think one data center can be one cluster. Yeah. Other data center can be other cluster. If you want to have a similar volume both the places, you can use geo-replication. That's what we support. So you can have a separate volume here. And you will have one more volume there. And you have to start replication session with this as a master and this as a slave. Either way, so both will have the same content of data. If you mount that volume there, it will have the same data. And if you mount the volume here, it will have the same data.
2: But if I update on the slave, will my changes go back from the slave to the master?
20: Yeah, no, like, uh, like you can do the changes of a master. It goes to the slave.
2: Yeah. But say I was in the remote location and it was faster for me to write to the remote location. I'm in the U.S. and I want to write to my slave, which is in the U.S.
21: Uh, I guess it's not possible. Uh, We don't support that right now. We are working on ways to probably do active-active or master-master replication. That's slightly hard to do. Yeah, I've
2: I've heard that all right. (laughs) Yeah,
21: you probably heard this the same (laughs) the last time. Uh, We have been trying to do this for a long time. We haven't found the proper solution
2: so so generally you would use the geo redundancy for just geo redundancy okay
16: cool so what have you been working on the whole year i have been working on integrating gluster with kubernetes so we have a plugin inside kubernetes now Uh, you can easily create easily run your gluster inside kubernetes and also provide storage for other kubernetes pods.
2: Yeah, that's. I don't need to ask everybody but in
20: general
21: what's the project we doing? Okay, <laughs> okay, so... Any
2: major releases or new milestones?
20: So, like, we are planning to do a release in next month yeah. like cluster 3.10 oh, sorry, this month, sorry. <laughs> Within two weeks, yes. actually. So, it has new features yeah. like brick multiplexing and debugging physics features like taking the state dumps on GFAP clients and performance improvement, like kind of that. And yeah, and we have like long-term projects like which we can, yeah,
21: that was Yeah, so our upcoming releases will, uh, with the coming release we are mainly targeting improving our container kind of uh, workloads. We weren't particularly suitable for the container scale where you would, uh, with Ashix project, where we can automatically create volumes, LustreFS volumes on demand. With the way LustreFS worked, it wouldn't scale so much. So we have done uh, brick multiplexing, as Jiffin uh, told. This enables us to run multiple uh, bricks in a single process. What's a brick? A brick is basically a directory that LustreFS exports, right? So uh, to export this directory, LustreFS runs a daemon we call LustreFSD or the brick daemon. So each directory would have its own daemon that was exporting it. But uh, when you scale to the cloud or the containers, that isn't manageable a lot. We would waste a lot of resources. So we, have, we are working on uh, uh, making that better by running multiple or serving multiple bricks from a single process. That's one of the major things we are going to do. Apart from that, we are working on improving our uh, performance, uh, particularly for small files and those things where uh, we got right now. We got notification support that was implemented recently. That would, that will in the future help us do better caching and that would improve performance better. So that, that is like in the upcoming release. Uh, we're also uh, doing uh, better. We're also doing a lot of work on our APIs, the GlusterFS API, GF API, to make it more suitable and give more features to it. And apart from that, in the longer term, we got projects happening to do. Uh, Server side replication. So, right now, Lustrefs works by doing everything on the client. So, servers are generally dumb. Servers don't know what they're doing. Lustrefs client decides where the data should go, where it should be replicated, and everything. But we are trying to do a server side replication to reduce some of the load on the clients because clients generally won't be as powerful as servers, right? So, servers can do a lot more of the heavy lifting. So, we want to do that. Uh, There is a new project to do distribution better. Uh, so we have a distribute translator, which distributes files across. But thats that doesn't scale particularly well. So we're trying to improve that. And in addition to that, we're also working on a new management so called Cluster D2, which should help with our scale issues. And which should also help, uh, what do you say, newer developers coming into the project. Because Cluster D is a really complex bit of software. And generally, if any new feature were to be developed in Gluster, for that to be available to end users, you'd have to do something in Glusterd. And uh, for a developer who was working on that particular feature to come in and figure out what to do in Glusterd was a hard task. So we are simplifying that, cleaning that up, and there'll be a new daemon a- around that. And that's happening, so that should be in the next couple of releases. So yeah, these are our longer-term goals right now.
16: Anything else, guys? It's- uh, what Kaushal told is mostly internal to Gluster. So, in integration parts, we also now support Gluster blocks, as in we have a way to export the Gluster volume bits into as a block. Now, it it is an integration part, not con- completely inside Gluster. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very
2: much, guys. Um, enjoy the rest of the show. Have a good night. Thank
8: you.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm at the OwnCloud booth, and
22: I'm talking to... Holger Dyroff from OwnCloud. Hello. How are you doing? So, can you tell me what OwnCloud is and why you're here? OwnCloud is an open-source file sync and share solution. So, basically, Dropbox for your own server and your own data center, and your own Raspberry Pi, if you happen to have one. And uh, we're here to show people how OwnCloud looks like, and we're even printing some OwnClouds with an open-source 3D printer today when you come by our booth. Well, who made the printer? Sorry? Who met, where did you get the print? This is from the FabLab Nuremberg. Okay, and it's yeah, all open source on GitHub and OpenSingy. Yeah, you can go out and print your own own cloud, which is kind of cool. Kind of awesome. So there was a bit of a, a parting of ways uh, during the year. So own cloud is still going ahead as a project? Oh, absolutely. Own cloud is uh, strong going ahead as a project. We have rehired quite some people to... Uh, get ahead and programming again. We're planning a 10.0 version for the spring. There are some exciting stuff upcoming like integrity checking with checksumming, custom groups, so you should definitely have a look at the early better versions there. And um, yeah, some people decided to go a different forked way, so yes. to say, yes. uh, like it often happens in open source. Yep. But that's normal in open source, I guess. And um, exactly. there are probably different focuses, we'll see. And what sort of licenses uh, own cloud released under? So OwnCloud has a core version, which is co- which is OwnCloud server, which is released under AGPL, so everybody can take that and, and enhance, like the fork did, right? Yes. And then we have an enterprise edition, which has very small additional features, which are useful for re- very large corporations, maybe 500 users upwards, and that's under a so-called commercial license, which means those people still can have a full look at the source code, they can still modify it, but they cannot give it to other people.
2: Okay. Yeah. And uh, so what are, it's been a busy year I guess. Uh, oh, yeah. but going forward what is
22: a what's the plans? The plan for OwnCloud is really to continue to provide a great product focused on the integration of the server side, the desktop client, Android and iOS devices and other devices as they come up. And really provide a great user experience between all of those. And having functions not just in the web front end, but also have them accessible from the desktop side with sharing API and all of those great items. So, as a if I was a, a corporation rolling out these boxes or providing it as a service, I could go to you guys for
2: uh, contracts and support, no doubt.
22: Oh, absolutely, You're right. So we sell subscriptions, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which includes support and then also the right to do some modifications on your own and keep them if you like. So, yeah, yeah. which some people like to do, others don't. Yep. Yeah. So it's a freedom of choice from our perspective. Absolutely. Okay, well, anything else that uh, is coming up that you want to tell our listeners about? There will be a new version of the desktop client, I think, in one or two weeks, uh, okay. version 2.3. A couple of exciting things like right click share with email, which is something people were missing yes, till yeah. now. Pretty easy feature, actually, but people will like it. And as always, it's going to be a new, greater, and better. Version which provides even better sync performance.
2: Fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time and enjoy the rest of the show. Very welcome. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm at the CEA CERT booth and I'm talking to Eva Sturve. Hi, can you tell people what CEA CERT is?
23: Um, It's a free and open certification agency. So we provide certificates like Let's Encrypt, but we are older and a little bit different.
2: Okay, how are you so of different?
23: Okay, our focus is uh, on the identity um, part, the signing and everything like this, while uh, Let's Encrypt mostly focuses on the encryption. Both provides the encryption, but we provide also certificates uh, uh, that identify who is uh, owning the uh, server or the email or whatever you use.
2: Can you So this whole process relies on uh, the um, the agents, yourselves, I guess, verifying the identity of the people who are going to be issuing the certs.
23: Asura,
2: we call them assurer, yeah. yes. So if I wanted to become an insurer, what do I need to do?
23: Um, you have to get assured yourself um, to the maximum of points, uh, 100 points, and afterwards uh, you have to do a, a little test. You can do this test as often as you want until you have finished it, um, the reason is we want just that you know everything. We don't want to test you. We want just ensure that you know the things. And then you can start to ins- assure others.
2: Okay, so what's the process? Let's pretend I was a newbie coming up to the stand here.
23: Okay, first you sign up on the website, or you can do it later, but uh, the idea is that you sign up on the website first. Then you can already get certificates, but it's an anonymous certificate, and we cannot say, well, it's you. If you want to be you, then um, well, you enter your, you, you. ask an assurer if you can be assured. Uh, then you fill up your uh, form with your name, the date of birth, and your email address, uh, and the signature and the date, and you sign that you accept our policies and everything. Um, and then you provide your ID card or passport or driver's license or something like this, so some kind of official document, one or two. And uh, then the assurer... Checks this uh, documents, uh, and we are told we we'll do more uh, or deeper checks than most uh, police or um, something like this. Um, and yes, we know what. The whatever. checks are
2: very thorough. <laughs> I've done this.
23: Yeah, yeah. And then uh, well, um, we do little, yeah, ask questions or something like this to just ensure that where well, the person is, um, yeah, seems to be honest. And then well, we send sign it and compare. The, uh, what we also do is we compare the picture and the signature and everything to the person also so we uh, really identify the person like on a PGP key signing but a little bit deeper process and then we um, enter this on the website with some points and then we're done.
2: And the whole point system the more points you have the more trust you have because you've been so I could go with my cert to you and I could go to somebody else and I could go to somebody else and that proves yep. to more people more people are saying yes I am who I say I am so therefore the, my trust level in the network also.
23: Exactly. So we start with um, um, one assurer who can give you probably up to thirty five points. You start as assurer with ten points a maximum and um, if there's more you assure the more points you can provide. And you need fifty points uh, as as assurees, so the one who gets the assurances, um, to get certificates with the names. And 100 points to get an Assure yourself and also for code signing certificates, but uh, you can get as many certificates you want um, all the time.
2: Okay, very good. So the more focus is on uh, on building the trust model. So have you been able to get any of the master certs into any of the browsers or as yet?
23: No, not yet. Uh, we had one attempt of an audit which is some years ago and this uh, was in theory quite positive but there was one element why where it, where it was failed and we did not manage to uh, start another audit uh, since then and actually it's Currently, we would be more interested in the audit as such and not, um, yeah, it would be a nice bonus to get into browsers. But we actually believe that the system with browsers and uh, browsers accepting certificates is broken because, well, why are you going to a certificate agency to get, uh, well, the trust, to trust the certificate agency. And so, well, you don't see it in the browsers. So um, now you trust the browsers about the certification agency and you don't select them yourself, and that's just broken.
2: Yeah, so by, you've, yeah, you've gone to all this work to trust everybody, and then you go, yeah. eh, Now nah, nah, it doesn't matter.
23: Exactly. So that's, uh, well, we, we want to be able to pass an audit eventually, but... Well, it would be a nice bonus to get into browsers for us, but for us it's more the idea to get the policies correct, the processes correct, the trust level adjusted, and that's more in our interest than, well, okay, it would be nice to be in the browsers, but...
2: Well, there's nothing to say that a piece of technology won't come around when everybody has got a level of trust to go, okay, well, this is how we're going to implement it, and now we put the root certs, and if the trust level of the root certs is over 14 million, then we can say more or less and of those people you can build a technology for trusting this the root search
23: yeah exactly um, but yeah. the work on
2: trusting people still so needs
8: to be done
23: yeah exactly so uh, for us the, the more important thing is that our members can trust us and that's what we care most about sure we know that we would get a lot more members and everything if we would be in the browser and that would be great and everything but we don't want to give up the trust of the current users, uh, the current members. And that's our focus. Okay. So
2: for, so what we're saying is for people who want uh, free and easy certs, go to Let's Encrypt. For people who want trusted certification from the ground up, yeah. come over to CACert.
23: So if you're only interested in the encryption and uh, easy handling everything, go to Let's Encrypt. And it's great that they are there uh, because they cover ground that was not covered before. Uh, we're happy to have them. We have some ideas maybe to, to join into it. We discussed something today that was quite interesting. Not with Let's Encrypt and Tets, but with somebody who has some ideas. And yes, we would... Uh, yeah, if somebody is uh, like this, it's enough. And if they, it's what they need, it's great. Uh, there was nothing like this, and we could not provide it. So it's, we are really, really happy that they are there. But we provide something differently. We, it's a different service, I believe. Yeah, and, uh, I
2: think so too, yeah. as well. Yeah. So... Well, thank you very much. Was there anything coming up that we should know about, or can you encourage um, people to start joining? E- yes,
23: so we need a lot of people. Um, we have something quite boring for most of uh, you to do, which is we have to move our um, organisation that is uh, behind us. So we have a. Uh, Uh, kind of um, uh, association in Australia and we have to move to Europe with the association so we have to create another association we have to uh, switch all the policies and and, um, get all the assets moved and everything so that's quite boring but we have to move because we don't have enough uh, members in Australia to uh, fulfill the laws Uh, yes exactly so at the moment it's okay but we know that we will have to move soon and that's what we are working at at the moment and we always need people in other uh, things as well so services and everything so we can need people yeah
2: cool thank you very much um links for everything will be in this show notes so um thank you very much for taking the time
8: (laughs) yeah thank you (laughs)
2: Hi, I'm at the SecureU booth. Who could you possibly be?
23: <laughs> okay, I'm Eva Sturbel. I'm not from SecureU, but I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, yes, yeah, SecureU is a German association to support secure project or projects about security, uh, to be more honest. And the major project they support is CS3rd. But they also have a PGP server and some other things. Actually, I'm not so deep into it, so I don't know all the details, but they also support other projects. Um, what they do is they collect money and provide it to those um, projects uh, they also have uh, servers running and they do a little bit um, uh, yeah, advertising and, and something like this not at, as much but a little bit and uh, that's their major focus and uh, they also uh, compare them a little bit and uh, yeah, low level research so that they don't have much manpower to do this but they also inform about those projects different ones So it's not only cs which we mostly um, see, but uh, they also have some other uh, ideas as well.
2: Okay, thank you very much.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday.